Hello and welcome back to the What The Fork podcast in association with Viber Goalkeeping. We've got a super special episode today. We've got two guests um, as we welcome England kitman Pat Frost and his assistant Neil Jones to discuss all things Three Lions and probably much, much more. But first and foremost, Pat, how are you doing? Are you all right? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. And Neil, how are you? Yeah, also good, yeah, in sunny Shrewsbury. I was going to say sunny South Shields, but it's it's definitely not. Definitely not in the north at the minute. Um, I think first things first, before we delve deep into England stuff, that summer in Russia and all sorts of stuff, um, I'll come to you first, Pat, for people who maybe are not fully aware of what the role involves. What What is a kit man? What do you do? What is your, your regular day? Well, our, our main aim is to make sure all the players have got the um, proper attire for training and when they're chilling around the hotel and stuff like that and to make sure... Basically, the head coach, the coaches, have got all the equipment for training. What about you, Neil? How would you class your your day to day stuff? Yes, it's, uh, basically what Pat's saying. But um, when people need it, we've got it there ready for them at that sort of right time because they virtually uh, turn up on camp with nothing. Yeah, brush and some, um, you know, um, wash bag and stuff like that. The rest we provide. You know, Out of all the players you've, you've worked with, who's the, who's the most unprepared then? Which one do you have to kind of basically baby a little bit and make sure they've got the toothbrush, the shirt, the tie, everything? Is that a question to me? Both. You drop yourself in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, I don't know. Do you know what? I, th- I think they know we provide everything for them, so yeah. they don't make a massive effort anyway to come with the right sort of stuff. Or, But, yeah, certainly down to the um, um, men, we actually provide underpants as well, so they literally <laughs> turn up with nothing if they don't want to just... Yeah. And we even supply toothbrushes <laughs> and toothpaste and stuff like that when I forget that. So, um, yeah. They never forget the PlayStations or the phones. <laughs> or the headphones, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Neil, just touching on you, I believe, if I'm, I could be incorrect with this and you can certainly put me right, but you've been involved with England across all levels since about 2010? Yep, yeah, that's right, yeah. So how did your involvement begin? Because I assume you had a, I know, well, I know you had a history before that, but just for people listening, so what, what is your background and how did it come England in 2010? I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> no background at all, really, in football, other than a football fan, football mad from a kid. Um, I worked my wife, actually. We had a contract cleaning company, and in about 2006, there was a recession going on, um, so we wasn't doing great. I needed some extra work, so I'd obviously knew Pat a long time. So I, uh, and I, he just got into transporting kit around Europe for the England youth teams. Mm-hmm. And I sort of approached Pat to see if there was any work or anything. And he's like, yeah, come along and start. So I started doing that, transporting the kit. And then I started, um, they asked me to be a kit man. So I think my first gig was something like the under 16 boys or something like that, which had players like Jordan Pickford in and Raheem Sterling, that sort of age group. And then it just progressed from there, really. I went across to the women's, done their youth teams, and just just sort of built my way up that way. Yeah. And Pat, so, I believe... So no football background at all. 
so you've got obviously a background together, but Pat, as far as I'm aware, you're West, well, you're with West Brom, you're a West Brom fan, it's, it's no secret, but what's your background, what's your history, how did you get all the way to where you are now? Uh, well, you know, there's a great saying in life, being in the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. and going back to what Neil said about transport, in 2004, I was got my own little transport business, only a couple of vans, you know, it was more curry work, and I had a phone call to see if I could take some stuff to Sweden. Um, and at the time, I didn't know what it was. I just said yes, obviously. And it turned out it was some football kit for the under-19 girls. Um, and I just hit it off with the head coach. They, the kit men weren't really on the scene in those days um, at international level, other than senior men and maybe the 21s. And I was out there for a week and I'd got nothing to do. She says, well, listen, if you've got nothing to do, why don't you stay and help? Um, and I just hit it off with the head coach and it went on from there for me, really. So I did my apprenticeship with the female youth squads and. Worked up pretty much like Neil did, but maybe just started a couple of years earlier. So who was the head coach at the time that he hit it off with? It was a lady called Maureen Marley, who is now, you all know Maureen Marley, of course, if you yeah. know anything about women's football. Absolutely. Um, so I've done some World Cups with Mo, European Championships. I was in Belarus, and I think it was the 10-year anniversary not so long ago about the under-19s winning in Belarus with uh, Tony Duggan, Jordan Nobbs, Izzy Christensen, yeah. and Ellen White who've all gone on to play for the seniors, of course. Talking of, obviously, the role of a kit man, I suppose, because you've both been involved in it, I'll, I'll throw this one to you first, Pat, and then, obviously, Neil, come in afterwards if you can. Um, has the role of a kit man changed then since the days, like your first game up until your last game that you've just been to before COVID? Has the role changed very much as things kind of, do you adapt and do different things? Do you have to have new things prepared? Or has it kind of stayed the same along, along the, all the way along the line? Um, do you know what? It, it's probably stayed the same for us as a role as a kit man and a, a job description. But what has changed is the amount of equipment and kit we now take with us. When I first started, for instance, I think there was maybe six or seven members of staff with a youth team. That's now doubled. Um, sports science has come to the fore and we'll take a lot more stuff for them, you know, with satellite navigation systems in their vests and stuff like that. So, in that in that respect, it's changed because we now take more stuff with them with us, but the role itself still hasn't. When I first started in two thousand and four, you made sure that everyone had got clean kit every day for training and for matches. We still do that now. We just take a bit more with us. Yeah, got you. Um, obviously, it's not just a senior team. I think you're involved in with Neil um, because obviously we touched on before the, the women's team and stuff like that. Um, what teams do you predominantly both get involved with? I'll, I'll throw that one to you first, Neil. What What is the your role at the moment? Do you get across the board or is it just a senior team currently? No, it's just now the senior team really. I still pack up for the um, ladies football mm-hmm. team and I pack up for the senior men's team. But it's just that demanding and there was a lot of crossover. So I, I, I think you're the same as well, Pat. We, we only do the senior men now. We, we, we'll fill in now and again if asked to do the youth teams, but no, it's just, it's just the senior men. It's funny you mentioned before about kit men and stuff. Sorry to interject, but yeah, obviously my, I'm a Sunderland fan. Um, so John Cook's obviously been there the best part of like 20, 25 years. And, and one thing I found quite interesting, I'm probably going back a little bit to a question I asked earlier, was your role in or the way that you got into the being a kit man, both of you really. Whereas John Cook was obviously former Sunderland and has just stayed there sort of forever. Um, can you train to be a kit man like you said because it sounds like you've got a, you've got so many demands across the board can you train to be a kit man or is it again like pat said right place right time um 
you definitely need to train, but you've got to train on the job. You, you can't, I wouldn't be able to tell you how to be a kit man. You've yeah. got a lot of sense of situations and it's, yeah, it's just time served and experience and making mistakes. Yeah. It's the only way to learn. You know, I've made loads of mistakes along the way and I'm sure Pat has as well. And that's the best way to learn. Just <laughs> He said he hasn't made a mistake. But no, that is the best way to learn, just making mistakes. I think that obviously I was been doing my research and looking at certain things that that's happened. And I think the most famous story probably came from Pat, but you were both involved with it was the Harry Maguire shirt situation. And I'm jumping far too far forward here. But um, for people who haven't heard the story, I'll come to you, Pat. What was the, the situation with, with Harry Maguire's shirt before that quarterfinal? Yeah, you're smiling while you're saying that, but I can tell you now at the time it was very stressful. And it, it might seem only a minor thing to anyone who's not involved in football or ever been in a dressing room. But let me tell you now, at the time, it was like, I think I broke into a sweat while I'm trying to get it sorted. We was just unlucky, I think, because the shirts came printed with names on the back and we would then put the the decal on for the game and the numbers on. So we weren't making up shirts from scratch. They'd come and it may have been sized wrong, but literally after they come in from the warm-up, I think it's the game against um, Sweden, the quarter-final maybe. Yeah. Or, yeah, I think it was. Um They've come in from the warm-up. So there's only five or six minutes left now. And, and by the time they've put their boots on, they've taken their sweaty warm-up T-shirt on. Their match shirt's probably the last thing they put on Yeah. just before they put their anthem jacket on, literally 10 minutes before kickoff. And um, Harry's put his shirt on. I'm, I'm running around doing bits and pieces. One of us would be in the dressing room. One of us would be out on the pitch gathering all the balls. And we take it in turns. This time, I definitely drew the short straw because Neil's probably minding his own business, picking the balls up out of the pitch. And Harry has said, he's, I won't tell you his exact words, but it was something along the lines of, Frosty, you printed me a shirt enough big enough for my granddad. I need to, I need to swap it. So we've, I've now got to find a shirt. The press is all set up ready, to be fair. And, you know, we're quite organised. So we've got numbers, we've got decals, everything's out. But you've still got to try and get the measurements right. You've got to make sure it's done properly. Um, and Hickman, because at this time the dress room's quite quiet, a lot of other people have heard what he said. So all of a sudden the focus now is all looking at me. I'm thinking, come on, Neil, come on, Neil, come through the doors now, come through the doors now. And, he, and I think he eventually bowled in with the balls on his shoulder and stuff like that. But, you know, when everyone's watching and even the head coach has said something like, you've done well there, you know you're under a bit of pressure. And I think he's put it on literally as he's walking out the dressing room door. So it was actually a little bit of um, a stressful moment there. It's funny as well when I was reading about it. I mean, obviously not funny, like you say, really, really stressful. But I was, uh, we had Andy Campbell, obviously, he used to play for Middlesbrough on the show. Um, and he had a situation where he had something very, very similar happened where he, I think he made his debut at Anfield. And the shirt that he'd been given had the wrong number and wrong name and stuff on the back, had the wrong spelling on the back or something like that. And the ref was like, look, you, you can't really come on um, with like your name spelled incorrectly. So he had to jump into the crowd. We're talking like mid-90s, late-90s here. He had to jump into the crowd, get a shirt off someone in the stadium because they hadn't brought enough. And then in the background, they had to go and get that printed within like literally seconds and it took them sort of two or three minutes to get yeah. on the pitch. It's surprising how... Not a regular occurrence, but the, the pressure that that must create. Since you've since that's happened, have you always made sure you've got like three or four shirts, so you never have to go through that again? Well, to be fair, I'll, I will let Neil answer this before. I, and we we do always have a spare shirt for them. Mm-hmm. Um, a, you know, we have a bag of blood shirts and stuff like that, but it's not straightforward. So I'll let I'll let Neil answer that one if you don't mind. Go for it, Neil. Well, in our defence. 
<laughs> we didn't do we didn't do the wrong shirt. He's just that day decided he wasn't a size he wanted to change to a different size. Yeah. So there was nothing we could sort of do about that. So the spare shirt that we had ready, which was all perfect, was still in his mind too big for him. So we've had to sort of change size. So there was nothing really we can do about that other than that. And we did have like it, it's only because of the time restraints that we had that created the massive pressure because we had the blank shirts, the name blocks, the numbers, the decals. It was just that it, it's that sort of pressure cooker moment just before they're about to go out on the pitch and other people might be sort of um, asking for stuff as well because they just leave things to the last minute. Some of it's ritual and stuff like that. Like Pat says, it's really hot as well. So the last thing they wanted to do was put their shirts on an anthem jacket. They was just leaving it till the death. And then, of course, that's when we had a bit of a panic. But, you know, we got through it. It was fine. Yeah. Did he, didn't now, he score? It? He scored in that game as well, yes. didn't he? First yeah, he did. Yeah. And we mentioned it. We actually said to him, we'll have to give you a wrong shirt, even though we didn't give him a wrong shirt. We actually said, oh, we'll give you a wrong shirt again next time. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you're right. His first half as well. It was that, that massive head of his just banging yeah. in, the, in the top yeah. corner, wasn't it, with a header? Um before I go on to the World Cup, which obviously we're going to have to go on to you because what a fabulous summer that was. But um, as I touched on before, Neil, you worked with uh, the women's team in the, the World Cup in Canada, obviously the World Cup in France. Very much so the World Cup in France is something I watched and I know that you sort of went away with them. Now, for someone from the Northeast that works in uh, women's football within the Northeast, but is also a Sunderland fan, you've got the likes of, of course, Lucy Bronze, but Jill Scott, Beth Mead, there's a big, big Sunderland contingent there and a Northeast contingent. Jordan Nobbs, you sort of touched on before. Um, Canada was great and I really felt like it promoted women's football a lot. But on top yeah. of that, you've also got a huge push that came from the uh, World Cup that came afterwards in, in France in 2019 because you've got household names now, like not just in America, Rapino and stuff like that. You've got over here, Lucy Bronze is, is really well known. But how was the experience for you? Because it's, it's a World Cup, but it did feel really significant for women's football. But how was your experience? Canada was just unreal, really, because that sort of came from nowhere. Yeah. Canada, it was just... And it was obviously Mark Sampson. Yeah. He sort of um, took over the team there and Lee Kendall and people like that. And we just... Um, it, it, it was just amazing, the, the whole experience of it. We was unlucky, if you remember, in the semi-final against Japan as well. Laura yeah. Bassett. That sort of own goal last minute, couldn't do anything about it. But, and then just to go and beat, because we hadn't really beat any big, you know, you know, the, the big nations, the Germanys, the France. So, to, so the significance in beating them in the semi final as well, it just proved that we can go and beat anybody. Yeah. You know, we just, we come close before, but so, so not just to win the bronze, but to actually beat Germany in a sort of a major tournament was amazing. I so that was good. There. Yeah. Because I think you should tell a story, because I love this story, because I'm a fan now, even women's, men's, whatever, I'm a fan. And Neil tells a little story about uh, what Mark Sampson said in the dressing room before the Germany game. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I genuinely can't remember the detail of it, but he just, he's got us all in a huddle and we're all coming out of that so emotionally. He's, he's a great talker, Mark Sampson is. I don't know if you've ever heard him speak or whatever. Yeah. But, He's sort of got us all in and we've all come out of there knowing we're going to win this. You know, none of us had any doubts that we was going to beat Germany and we'd never, you know, we hadn't beaten under Mark's reign, certainly, and we hadn't even come close. 
but we just come out of that dressing room thinking we're going to win this. And we did. And it was just unbelievable experience. And like you say, the women's football since then pushed on massive, didn't it? There's loads of girls playing the game now. Some of the Premier clubs, Premier League clubs didn't even have women's teams back then, but I think they all have now. I don't know, was it Tottenham or Man United? Was they one of the last ones to have it? You know, I can't remember, United, but, I think. but they've all got it now. And then the same with France. France was good. And, and America, they, they was better than us, but, it, you know, we could have still won that. Did you watch the game? I did, yeah. The penalty, obviously, that penalty goes in. Absolutely everything in that game. I don't think there was any major incident in football that didn't happen in that game. You had the Ellen White, the VAR goal ruled out and stuff like that. And then it was just a shame. They, I think that was against Sweden in the semi-final. I think it, it was sort of after the Lord Mayor's show, really. So they couldn't reach the heights of what they wanted. We was unlucky in that because obviously we missed out on Jordan Nobbs as well. She got injured. So I wasn't able to come. But Huge mess. It's just an amazing experience. And Lucy Bronze, like you say, that four years, she's as good as anything in the world, isn't she? So Absolutely. that goal she yeah. scored against Norway in Canada was unbelievable. She scored right another cr- yeah, I know, yeah. I Ridiculous. Know. Yeah, she's, um, yeah, unbelievable, Lucy Bronze. Could you feel at home the, could, I felt like the support really took off, like for someone who'd been involved in women's football so just before that and took an interest um, to where I am now. I remember at home, it was like my dad who'd never watched women's football, my brother who'd never watched women's football we all got like cans in and, and sat and watched like the, the quarters, the semis, all of the games. Could you feel that level of support from home? Could you feel it was almost yeah. like a, just a standard normal World Cup as it should be? Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it was really good. And that was great kickoff times as well, if I remember rightly. Yeah, uh, certainly they were. For, and, the, and the Canada one as well, we were sort <clears> of, the, the, the national team, men's national team, wasn't doing great, was they, at the time? So I think people were almost latching on to the women's game as well. You know, the old cliches, at least they try and all this sort of thing. So it just it just sort of came at the right time. But that France one, yeah, it was just, oh, we were seeing pictures back from home. And like you say, it was just the fubs with the flags and the, the singing and the cheering when they scored. So, yeah, it was, yeah, unbelievable. And that America game as well, and I quite liked this. I liked that it had a little bit of needle in it as well. It's the first time I'd seen mm-hmm. a proper bit of needle during that, and it was obviously the Alex Morgan with the, the teacup moment and all that kind of stuff. And we, I think we were very different in personality. I mean, I don't know any of the girls, don't get me wrong, um, but we seemed like very different personality to the Americans that day. And it had a bit of needle about it, and it was kind of, you felt people getting angry about it, which is quite good. It kind of felt like, as it always should have done. But yeah, fantastic tournament, and I think... I think with England, I think obviously Phil, uh, there was a bit of a sticky moment afterwards and obviously Phil's announced he's leaving and things like that. But when you look at like the players we've got in that team, there's so many good young players and the experienced players are still only 28, 29. I mean, Jill Scott, what, 31, 32 and vastly yeah. experienced and still got plenty left in her as well. So people talk about the England men's team going on to maybe win the Euros, which would have been this year. There's no reason that the England women's team can't do exactly the same, isn't there? I totally agree. And that's what my sort of... Because my swan song was the Sweden game, actually. That's when I finished and sort of went across. And I had to sort of, you know, they they got me a nice gift and I had to stand up and say a few words. And that's exactly what I said. It's not not if they're going to win a tournament. It's just when. It's just a matter of time. They just need everything to happen. Bit of luck. 
and they will win a major tournament. There's no doubt about that. And the amount of girls that they've got playing the game now since yeah. Canada, really, that was a sort of the legacy that that left. And it's just the normal now, isn't it? Before you'd sort of, a few years ago, be like, what, your daughter plays football? Now it's not like, of course she plays football. She's at yeah. school and that's what boys and girls play football. And it's so, interesting you know, that they've all got idols as well. Like obviously working with Middlesbrough, the, the 16, 17 year olds coming through, I can quite easily ask them for the programme, you know, who's your favourite player? And it stopped being Ronaldo and Messi. It started being Jill Scott and Lucy mm-hmm. Bronze. And it's that that's such a huge step up as well. And um, before I move on to sort of you, Pat, as well, and we'll go into the sort of World Cup and a few other things. I just wanted to ask Neil um, from your side, I think Phil Neville, uh, rightly or wrongly, he's probably come in for better praise, better criticism, both sides. Uh, you've someone that's worked with him and sees him in the dressing room. How do you find Phil Neville as a, as a manager? Brilliant. Yeah, really, really good. He, he's from... He, he, he's like Gareth as well. They're just good people. You know, they're very humble people. Yeah. They're not like, I don't know if it's a new breed of managers coming through. You hear stories of some of the old managers that used to be bullies and that sort of stuff. And not so, these are just nice people. You know, that, for instance, if you're, I don't know, if you're queuing up for food at, at lunchtime, they're not going straight to the front because they're the manager or anything like that. They're just queuing up behind you. They're just, and it just makes you what you know want to do well for them, but yeah, that humility and obviously they've had a lot through the managers they've worked for and they've just passed it on, and and they're very good at uh, Pat will agree with this as well. If if they think any of the players are putting on you or anything like that, they'd be the first to say, you know, have a bit of respect. These lads work hard for you. You know, show the respect back for them. So they're yeah. very good for us. We could go to them if we felt there was a problem and they back us up. Do you have to prepare the waistcoats for, for Phil and Gareth? <laughs> I always wondered that. <laughs> no, that just came from nowhere, didn't it? I think the story was, didn't he say it was hot or something? So we yeah. went for the waistcoat look or something, yeah. It's a smart look, to be fair. It's definitely different. It's definitely a smart look. Um, I'll throw this one at, at you, Pat. Um, we've talked about a few experiences that you've had and we've discussed the Maguire moment, but what's like the funniest or most memorable experience you've had during your time at England? Uh, well, it's not funny, but it's similar to the Harry Maguire one, actually. Mm-hmm. I was kit man for the England on the 20s mm-hmm. when they won the World Cup in Korea. Yeah. And I did, I, Freddie, um, a lad from North East, Freddie Woodman, saved a penalty. The Newcastle And I, I had yeah. a, such a bad five minutes, I didn't even know there was a penalty. I didn't, I hadn't even seen. We got a lad called Dom Solanke playing up front, mm-hmm. who was playing unbelievably well he was man of the match by a mile and he was just out of this world and after about 15 minutes or 20 minutes he got a bit of blood on his shirt so we had to change it at half time and for whatever reason I hadn't got any blank shirts but I got three blood shirts for I got three match shirts all decaled up for every single player Um, because nowadays normally if you get a head injury with blood they don't stop on they bring them off Yeah, but um, Dominic's was maybe just a scratch or something, but obviously they're not allowed to play with blood on anything. Mm-hmm. And then into the second half, I think the wound had reopened or something. So I've had to change his shirt again. So I'm now trying to find his shirt from the first half because I know I haven't got a flipping England shirt for him to put on. And I've had the, for five minutes, I'm running in and out like a maniac. And in that five minutes, they've um, they've missed a penalty. But because there was no... Um, I think it was against uh, Venezuela. Mm-hmm. 
there was there wasn't thousands of Venice Wayland in the crowd and stuff like that. So I didn't know, you know, there was no crowd indication to say there'd been a penalty or missed it. And it was only about 20 minutes after the game when everyone's saying, oh, Fred this, Freddie that, Freddie this. I'm like, I know he's done well, but, you know, what about Dominic Slanky who's out of this world? Yeah, but he saved a penalty. I'm like, did he? I didn't even <laughs> know he'd saved a penalty. It was one of those that you just get so engrossed in what you're trying to do to keep everything happy on the pitch. I didn't know there'd been a penalty and we'd saved it till about 20 minutes after the final whistle. And that is the thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not the most experienced. I've only been involved in sort of match day media sort of things for the best part of a year. Um, but sometimes it isn't like being a fan. You try your best, but sometimes you're so concentrated on, for me, it would be making sure I've got the angles right, I've got the filming right, I've, no one's in the way of filming the goal because I've only got the one camera. You've obviously got the shirts and stuff like that. I think, um, in a way, people sometimes forget that you are so concentrated on stuff. Sometimes it's nice just to be a fan, isn't it? Do you quite enjoy sitting back and watching games occasionally, just like now and again? Yeah, it's, when we were at the World Cup, actually, we were only allowed one of us on the bench because of numbers and what have you. Yeah. So when you're on the bench, whatever happens, you've got to make sure you're watching to do your job all the time. When you're sat in the technical seats behind you and you know you can't... So I'm in the technical seat and Neil's on the bench. There's absolutely nothing I can do to help Neil because you can't go down there. FIFA don't allow it. There's only a certain number. So you can sit there and you can watch it and you can jump up when they score and you can sing the Harry Kane songs and you can join in with the Gareth Southgate song. When you're on the bench, you can't do that. No, that's very true, actually. Um, talking about the the fact that you can only have one on the bench, did you switch then between games and stuff like that or did you kind of have one person that sat there all the time? Go on now. Uh, yeah, we just we, we decided from the start we'll just switch it. Yeah. So Pat did the first one and then we just took it in turns and it was just the way... There's nothing there. better, by the way, than on the bench. And when you're a fan, and I know you're getting paid for it, to be stood there in that line singing the national anthem, representing your country, because that's what you're doing. Yeah. And you've got thousands of fans singing the national anthem. 20 foot down the line, Gareth Southgate's there, the players are there, and you're sat there, you're stood there with your arms around them in the, singing the national anthem. There's no better feeling. I promise you there isn't. I imagine it's especially in like the, I mean, I'm saying the semi-final, but the quarters, the first game, because obviously the Tunisia game was fantastic as well. But I think sometimes I've watched England on the TV or I've obviously been to old Wembley. I've, I've since been to new Wembley. I've been to a few England games. And the heads do sometimes stand up on the back of your neck, don't they? Imagine when you're that close to the action. And these these guys are your mates now. Like, And I understand that you won't just see them as just footballers. They're people that you're working with and working for. So you're kind of standing there effectively with your mates, living out, what everyone would want to do but at the same time you've got these lads that you want to see do so well on a pitch and it, well, it's it's the world's biggest stage isn't it there's no bigger stage than the world cup like do you have to kind of like almost remove yourself from how much of a goosebumps moment that is because I, I can't imagine i can't imagine doing it i'm just talking about it and thinking wow like imagine how great that must be so to you pat do you sometimes have to remove yourself from the enormity of it because you'll just like freak out <laughs> Yeah, you do actually, and it's it's difficult not to do it smiling from ear to ear. You know when um, you've just won the quarter final and the the third the game against um, who did we in the penalty shootout? Colombia. Yeah. You know when you're in the dressing room after you've you've won your first penalty shootout at at um, a World Cup, and or you're in you're in the huddle for the Gareth Southgate pep talk ten minutes before kickoff. You know. Uh, you, we know how lucky we are. You, everybody, everybody you know would love to do what we do. We know that, but to be there, it's just 
it is. It is. Um, it's difficult to put in words. Actually, how lucky we are and how much how much we enjoy it. Yeah. And I, in fact, when I the last time um, the last game I went to, and this is again what Neil was saying about how good these coaches are. Gareth, when we before we get off the plane, Gareth there shaking everybody's hands, you know, thanking you and what have you. And I sort of like, I just whispered in his ear, "Don't ever sack me. I just I want to do this forever." <laughs> yeah, and I'd feel very much the same way. I think everyone can completely envy but empathise with exactly, well, understand exactly what you're saying. Sorry, talking about Southgate, um, obviously I asked you just before, Neil, I'll, I'll throw this one to you, Pat, again, because obviously we've, we've had a bit of discussion on it. But um, what I quite like about Gareth Southgate, now it's it's difficult for me because Sam Allardyce was obviously the man that left Sunderland and since that's happened, Sunderland have fell through a million trapdoors. So a little bit of anger that he went to England for one game, but then Southgate came in um, and almost because Sam Allardyce was the choice, I think a lot of people said with Southgate, oh, it's like just the choice of this or that. The other, oh, it's just an obvious choice. But he gradually became this really strong, progressive coach that it's basically turned England from being, well, it would be nice if we got to the quarterfinals to still kind of the anguish that we didn't actually get the final. And we feel like we could win the Euros and we, we genuinely feel it for the first time in ages. Um, as someone who works with him and has been in the pep talks and has been around Southgate, um, how bright is England's future with Gareth and George? Well, listen, they don't pay me enough money to decide he's the best bloke to manage it. All I can say is now at the moment, why would you ever want to change it? I will yeah. say this, he's, Gareth's got a good backup with coaches as well. Um, his assistant, Steve Holland, he does a lot of talking in the dressing rooms. That bloke is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, I, I listen to him implicitly at half-time and the amount of things he says at half-time that he tells them that's going to happen in the second half that does happen in the second half. These These people are... You know, they're unbelievable. And he has got a good backup. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, why would you want to change anything at the moment? You wouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels, as an England fan, it feels really bright at the moment. It's like you're looking across the pitch. My my girlfriend's Scottish, so she's on the opposite side. She doesn't feel that bright about her future uh, with her national team. But our national team, obviously, I look through the sides that we've got and I look through the people that are in the, the front three and you could pick six to seven players that could realistically get in that team now and to be in that position. But at the same time, this has all seemed to blossom since Gareth has came in. And for the first time in, what, since 1996, to you as an England fan and me as an England fan, it feels the most together the country's been from a national team perspective in a long, long time, doesn't it? I'll throw that to you, Pat. Uh, yeah, it does. And do you know what? Gareth was involved in the last time. It was probably like this in 96, so he knows all about it. And regards to players coming through, um, don't forget we won the under 17s World Cup, we won yeah. the under 20s World Cup. So we knew that there was loads of talent there. It's just now, you know, we're almost, I'm, I'm not saying we're overrun with it, but we've got a, you know, we've got a lot to choose from, haven't we? Almost, we can't wait to see choice. the next squad. Yeah, there's almost too much choice. In a sense, it's like you look through across the board, there's just so much choice in the side. It's. We, we, so many riches there, it's ridiculous, really. And, yeah. and we really should be pushing to, to, to sort of win the US. Now, really did fancy us this year, but unfortunately, COVID happened. Um, with, with Gareth as well, and again, I'll throw this one at you, Pat, but he does seem like quite a quiet, conservative, sort of um, considered bloke, shall we say. But is he more vocal with the players in and around the dressing room? Obviously, when we won against Columbia and the kind of the two-fist moments and the shouting of the come on, and it's kind of real anger and real kind of passion there with him. So do you think, although he's considered a quiet and considered bloke, is he more vocal with the players? Has he got that kind of passion that we saw that day within the dressing room walls? 
Well, you, you've clearly seen his passion. I'm not going to lie, I've never seen him raise his voice. I've never heard him raise his voice anywhere. Everything is measured, everything is, you know, it's why the, the players love him as well. Yeah. You know, it's not just the staff, it's the players. And I don't need to tell you what the fans think of him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we love him. Yeah, let's be honest. He's got his own song. I can't remember the last England manager that had his own song. I might be wrong with that, but I don't remember one an England manager that had a song for a long time. I'm trying to think of one. (laughs) (laughs) Might not. Might have been a few, but maybe not pleasant ones. I just can't think of what they are. Um, In regards to Jordan Pickford, I'll throw this one at at you, Neil. But um, Jordan Pickford, someone I saw on his his league debut at Arsenal for sorry, it was his FA Cup debut, his full his full debut uh, for Sunderland. Someone I've watched come through the academy and like thing is with Jordan, I, I rate him really highly and I know recently he's come in for a lot of criticism um, as a bloke and as someone who's like a proper Mackham, I love him. Like, cause you see that character, you see that swagger and I know Kevin Ball, who he came through with um, at Sunderland at the academy and everyone that knows him speaks really, really, really highly of him. But recently he has come in for a little bit of criticism. Um, from what I can gather, he's the kind of person that will take any criticism on board very constructively, but has got enough swagger to believe in himself. But what's your opinion of Jordan as a character and as a person? Careful. Now, well, as a character, <laughs> he's probably just like me and Pat. He's just a normal bloke. He's yeah. just a normal lad who's got an amazing talent. Yeah. He hasn't got any angle or edge about him. Pat will tell you, he's so... You, you, you can have a joke with him, you can have a laugh with him, but he, he's very, very observant, you know. He doesn't miss a trick. If I don't know, if me and Pat's got a pair of shorts on too big, he'll notice and he'll dig you out about it. But he's, he's, he's the one where, because we always have to meet the players and that when they come, so they give us their boots and their trainers and their flip-flops. Mine and Pat's face, he's both light up when he's his car pulls up and he's getting out because that smile on his face and you know you're going to have a good crack with him for a few minutes. But yeah, that's that's the best thing I could say or the most honest thing. He's just a normal bloke. Yeah. Just the, the first life. thing he'll say is a, a West Brom are rubbish because he knows we both follow Albion. But don't forget as a Sunderland fan and, and even if you're not a Sunderland fan, if you're a Newcastle fan, you'll respect this. He's bought his own flag to the World Cup with Sunderland on it and I've had to put it up next to my West Brom flag. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter who you support when you're showing passion like that about yeah. in your own hometown. It doesn't matter if you follow Newcastle, Middlesbrough, or whatever. They're going to respect that. Yeah, because he I, wants I, his flat Sunderland flag up. I would say they say this about most of them, but I don't think Jordan Pickford's changed the success and you know everything he's got with football. I still think he's the same bloke. Personal. I don't know about you, Pat. He hasn't changed, does he? No, he, do you know what? He can send you a message um, after training. Where are you? Why? What do you want? Oh, nothing. I've got you a can of Coke and a Kit Kat in the kit room. You know, stuff like that. Because he knows I like Coke and chocolate. <laughs> With Pickford, like I say, we we seen him as a Sunderland fan. I've seen him coming through and I've always rated him really highly. And for me, 30 million was never enough. And I know people disagree with me on that. And I know there's been things said about him and stuff like that. For me, he's still in the number one. And I don't know how biased that is, but... I was always curious about his character because he's such a supremely confident lad as well, though, isn't he? Some people say he's overconfident, but I mean, you look at what he's done. He's the first goalkeeper to pretty much win us a World Cup quarterfinal. Well, any World Cup shootout, actually, come to think of it. And for me, I don't know if just because I've seen him for so long, that was the first shootout where I thought, well, the keeper will have gotten goal can save a penalty. 
and he's confident enough to not worry about things in the past. Um, did you feel the same way? I'll throw this one at you, Neil. Um, did you feel the same way with that shootout, like with Pickford and goal? We stood more of a chance than probably we ever had because it's just something about him, isn't it? Exactly the same. He's just confident. He just backs himself. And I do a lot of work as well. I don't know if you... I think it was uh, highlighted, wasn't it, or mentioned about they've done all their homework on the penalty yes. takers. Yeah. I think he got it on his water bottle, hadn't he? And he that was right, it. yeah. But, oh, he, oh, he's just supremely confident. So I was like you. I thought, you know, we've always got a chance with him in goal. And it was just great, wasn't it, for him? No, you know, not only that, <laughs> he'll take, he takes penalties in shootouts as well. And he I was just them. about to say he wouldn't be frightened of saying of taking one. He would have wanted to be in the first five taken against Colombia. I promise you now. He'd be like, I won't try and do his accent, but I can see him saying it. Well, I fucking take one. <laughs> what was the, Coaches was the, have already said in the, in the past that goalkeepers should take more penalties because they probably concentrate more on their uh, distribution and exactly where they want to place a ball. They should be best to be putting them in the top corner and whatever, shouldn't they really? Was it the Switzerland game where he took one? I think it was, I don't know if it was a winning penalty, but he just stepped up and it was like the most supremely confident penalty right in the bottom corner, away from the keeper's reach. And again, it's probably because I'm a Sunderland fan, I never doubted it, but I know a lot of people were going, oh, keepers up, yeah, he'll score it, no problem. And the confidence that he had, like swaggering up, taking it, and the confidence he had swaggering up when he'd scored it was just like, there's nothing like him. Um, what I'm curious about, and obviously it worked out, but probably the most famous Sunderland Academy graduate and the current player of the year, which I'm sure he will be across the board with all the medals, Jordan Henderson. Um, another player I've seen come up as a fan, another player that seemed destined for the top and he is destined for the top and um, vice captain at the moment, obviously Harry's the main captain, but for a moment, it looked like he was the man that was going to be the Gareth Southgate, shall we say, the man who missed the penalty. And then Jordan Pickford saves those two penalties and bails him out. So from a, a Mackham to a Mackham, that was the best story for us because it was like the Mackham build out the Mackham and we still got through. But I'll throw this to you, Pat. Um, was there a little bit of a thanks very much, Jordan, to, from Pickford to Henderson in the dressing room after that? Well, did you see what, how Jordan reacted when Eric scored? Yes. He's not, he's not gone running off. He's dropped to his knees in relief because that would have affected Jordan, I'm sure. But Jordan and... Um, Jordan and... Um, Jordan. And they're close anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. They're, they're actually good mates. But another um, Henderson story, by the way, against uh, Sweden in the quarterfinal, I think he's come off on something like 82 minutes. Mm-hmm. Give or take, 10 minutes to go. And he sat down on the bench and the doctors asked him a question. The physios asked him a question. The sports scientists asked him a question. Only, are you okay? Do you need a drink? Do you need some ice? Something like that. He'd given that much for his country, he couldn't speak. He hadn't got an ounce of breath left. And you know when, and I've done it in the past, I used to be a, always a fan following England and just say my day, it might have been Peter Beardsley or Gary Lineker or David Platt. Philip Hinek, he's not even trying. Don't ever say that about Jordan Henderson. He came off that pitch, he could not breathe. He, didn't, he couldn't speak, he'd given that much for his country. And I'd always, I, if someone's always asked me about what your memories of the World Cup, I always mention that. He was unbelievable. He just could not speak. Since that tournament as well, we knew Henderson was good at that point. But since then, he's gone on to become the best player in the Premier League officially. Won the Champions League, won the Premier League. Um, I'll throw this one to both of you, actually, and you can go in, in whichever way you want. But were you, 
surprised in any way, shape, size, or form at the fact that he continued that progression, knowing him as you do and knowing him as the professional and the person. Are you, is there any level of surprise at how high he's, of the game he's reached? Oh, no. uh, I'll, I'll answer first. Yeah, I'm not, because he just works hard as anybody else, if not harder than anyone else. You know, he, he just doesn't start. And even, um, was it Spain, Pat? I can't remember now. Was he banned but still wanted to come? he come as a fan, didn't he? Remember he got, didn't he get a second booking or something? Or he couldn't play. Yeah, and but I, did he? I don't think he travelled with the team. I can't remember now, but I just remember when we beat Spain, he come down by the bench. Yeah, he'd cut, he'd stayed as no. He, he, maybe he'd flown his missus and kids. Are going to? Because he didn't want to miss the game, wasn't there? And it, it was just. Do you remember that he was in Seville, was it? And we won three yeah. two. But I just remember him and he was just in his civilian clothes down by the bench because he wants it as much. He's just as big a fan as we are. You know, he, he wants to win, but he's he's a true leader, any part. Yeah, he's actually got he's got an aura about him. You know, you know, when you walk into the um, you've all seen the last American werewolf in London when they walk into yeah. the slaughtered lamb, it goes quiet. <laughs> when Jordan walks in the dressing room, people know. Yeah. And it's. I think with Henderson as well, we always rated him really highly at Sunderland, but there was there was some people who thought, you know, he was overpriced at 16 million. How much do you think you'd pay from now? 100, 200? <laughs> it's like, he's, he's worth a bit more than 16, that's for sure. Yeah, I think we I think we undersold ourselves a little bit there. Um, one one question that is always going to be asked, and I'll throw this one to you, Pat. Who's the, the best, who's got the best patter? Who's got the best banter in the dressing room out of all the lads? Well, do you know, there's actually quite a few, but Jordan Pickford will be up there. Marcus and Jesse, when they're together, you, yeah. you could say they're a nightmare, but they're the, they're a nightmare in the best possible way, if you know what I mean. Because those two are very infectious. They're always laughing. Um, uh, Jordan, Harry, you know, they're all, you know, they're all good lads. Um, Jaden, Sancho, Maddens, and Maddens are painting the backside in a really nice way because it'll yeah. walk past you and give you a little dig in the ribs or something, you know. Talking about uh, sort of players in the dressing room, you've mentioned Jesse Lingard there. He's someone who over the past few years seems to have had so much criticism. Um, and for me, he was one of the better players in the World Cup. And what I quite liked, I watched a video the other day when he was speaking with, I think it was Maya Jama, and it was based on the Heads Up campaign that the FA are doing. Um, and he was chatting about his his life and obviously how there's been more difficult periods in his life over the past year at home and how it's affected him. Um with with Jesse Lingard, I think there was a lot of stuff said about his personality, which was unfair because it was based on 30-second videos of him just being a bit daft. How good of a lad is Jesse Lingard, and do you think he'll bounce back from what's been a difficult year, shall we say? He's, we love having him there. He's, he's a great bloke to have. Because like, he's, he's already he's, starting to bounce back, and he's showing a bit of form as well at the minute. So yeah, and He's the kind of bloke that if you didn't have him in your squad, 23-man squad, you'd want him to come along anyway. <laughs> just one of those blokes. There seems to be a real um, unity within the team. Like, you know, when we're talking about players there and we're talking about, like, relationships between them, you've got Henderson and Pickford, you've got Rashford and Jesse Lingard. There's players across the pitch that build up a relationship. And I think we touched us on this before, about sort of 30 minutes ago. Fans, manager, players, youth teams, under-21s, under-17s, under-19s, they all seem to be a real togetherness in England at the moment. Um, do you think that's what's pushing us so far forward? And, and not just the quality we've got, but the unity that we've got together in the team, I'll, I'll throw that to you, Neil. Yeah, definitely. And like you say, a lot of them have started from under 16s, under 17s, under 18s. So they've got used to that sort of England ethic, if you like. But it's definitely, 
it's definitely the friendships as well that's making a big difference. We've got a lot in our dressing room. I think uh, Mason Mount and Declan are really good friends. Jess and Marks are good friends. Um, but yeah, I think that's. Um, I'm trying to say, but yeah, that's that's giving us the strength at the minute. Definitely. Um, oh, I've gone a blank now. Go on, you you get in like that. I've <laughs> just gone so yeah. yeah, it doesn't just happen overnight. By the way, it's something that's yeah. And for instance, um, the the physio at uh, England, a lad called Steve Kemp, and he sets his um, medical room up, and every evening it's set up so that there's a massive screen. There's some sofas in there, so. When the lads are having a massage, they'll all be watching a film. And sometimes you can have 15, 18 players in there all at the same time. You know, this is 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, all sat there just chatting, watching a film all together and stuff like that. And all that sort of stuff helps. Absolutely. Um, one thing I did want to touch on, I kind of don't want to, but I kind of do at the same time because it's all experience. And uh, ultimately, it was, uh, it was some fantastic moments in it. But the semi-final, uh, the first question I've got to ask, I'll, I'll ask you then, Pat, and then obviously, Neil, you just come in straight afterwards. But... Um, the semi-final what was that like being at that at the game in general like what was the experience well the build-up was unbelievable I, I don't want to talk about the end because I, I was um, especially when we've gone 1-0 up after flipping 3 or 4 minutes and we're only what 20 minutes away from a World Cup final yeah the, the build-up was brilliant and obviously when you're over there the the videos that are all coming out of the fans from the quarter-final in the bars and the pubs and the big sports parks all the players are seeing all these, you know. They play them on the big screen for everyone to see them. So we're seeing how it's built up from the Panama game, the Tunisia game, all the way through the tournament. And it built up almost to a frenzy. And it's no different for everyone there. They're trying to keep everyone's, you know, calm and feet on the ground. But they can't wait. They just want to get out there and play this semi-final. And at the end of the game, it's like, you know, it's you can just imagine how bad it is when you've just lost. Especially when you, you think you've got half a chance and, you know, you're 1-0 up and... Just one of them things, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What was I agree your with that. Like? Just surreal, just surreal for us. Yeah, and it was it was an emotional day anyway because our our wives were fortunate enough to come out to see the game as well. So we we'd been away for six weeks, so seeing them as well, and uh, I know Pat's younger daughter come out as well. So it was just it was a, a great experience, but just surreal. You know, we're pinching ourselves. We've watched these massive World Cup games. I think 78 was probably my World Cup, I remember. And I don't know what Pat, Pat's was. But and then, but I would have to say, I don't know what, if Pat agrees as well, after the game in the dressing room is the lowest and quietest I've ever known a dress. In fact, I didn't really know what to do. It, it's minor, even though we've just lost, the show's got to go on and we've still got to empty the dressing room and do our job. We was frightened to make a noise, wasn't we, Pat? We yeah. had the boot, the boot steamer. You know, we wheel across the floor. We actually said, "Let's lift it," because we didn't <laughs> want to make any sort of noise whatsoever. It was, nobody wanted to speak, did they? No, it we stayed just didn't quiet. Know what to say? No, it stayed quiet for about thirty minutes. You know, just nothing. The odd little word here and there. The odd nod of the head and. The head coach is gutted. The assistant coach, you know, everyone is just devastated because we, we, you know, we thought we got half a chance. Well, we had got half a chance, mm. and how the euphoria from the quarterfinal and the fourth round game, this was like, you know, it was horrible. And you're right; I've done a lot of dressing rooms, and it was really, really, it was like almost eerily quiet. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Bear in mind, there's Weird. fifty people, fifty lads inside this dressing room. 
Who's and like Neil person? says, we've got to now pack up. We've got to get everything sorted because the following morning, within 24 hours, well, 14 hours, we got to pack up. We've got to get the stuff ready to go back home. So we can't, you know, we can't sit around and mug around. We've got to get it sorted. Who was the first to speak then? Who kind of broke the ice? Was it Gareth or? No, it might have been someone like one of the medicals. Anybody fancy an ice bath? It was just, you know, (laughs) one of them. Fucking ice bath. (laughs) It would have been something like that. The thing is as well, though, we've reacted so well to that. I mean, the Nations League, I know, obviously, we we lost uh, to Holland, I think it was, but bloody hell, we beat some decent teams on the way to getting there. And and again, you know, we spoke before, if the Euros had gone ahead this this month, uh, well, last month, for me, it would have been the first time since probably '96 where I would have genuinely felt the coin of phrase that I was coming home. Um, we've responded really, really well. I suppose my my final question would be, and obviously I'll go with you first, Neil, and then and then you, Pat. But um, from what you know, what how excited are you for England moving forward, and, and what do you think we can achieve? Can't wait. Exactly the same as you. I thought we had a great chance in the summer and I hope we haven't missed it. It might work in our favour because I know Harry Kane and people like that were a little bit of a doubt, wasn't they? So, you know, all the clouds could be aligning or the stars aligning, as I say, and you never know. It might just be that sort of look we needed. And uh, the under-17s, like Pat said, won the World Cup, so their players might have matured a little bit more as well. So... You know, it might have done us a favour, but I'm definitely confident that we've got a great chance. Yeah, same. What about you, Pat? Yeah, and, and I don't like to moan about football and COVID because I know there's people a lot worse off than us yeah. with what's happened with COVID and football. But when it, it all came about and you knew the Euro was going to get cancelled, it was like, it was devastating because we we couldn't wait to get there. You know, there's 40 members of staff who were dying to get there. There's 25 players, 30 players dying to get there. But like Neil said now, the the one or two that might break through from the other 21s uh, for that from that um, squad that won the World Cup at 17 and 20s, that might be the little piece that's missing. You just don't know. Yeah. It's going to be like I said, we can't wait to see the next squad, actually. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. You've got like the likes of Hudson Adoya breaking through and stuff like that. Yeah, just yeah. Embarrassment of riches. Just fingers crossed we can we can go the next step. But um, lads, thanks so much. Incredibly interesting and, and great to go over. Obviously, two great summers with the Women's World Cup and obviously Russia as well. Uh, fingers crossed next time we chat, we can be discussing a, a trophy as well. Eh? Fingers crossed. Yeah. Thank you yeah. very much, though. Appreciate it. All right, pal. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, See pal. You later, Not a problem. Bye.